0: Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. France's presidential election, the first round of which took place on Sunday, was tighter than expected. Here to explain the results so far and what they mean is Simone Rodan Benzeken, Managing Director of AJC Europe, in conversation with my colleague, Melanie Marin-Pell, AJC's Chief Field Operations Officer.
1: Melanie? Thanks, Manya. Simone, welcome. Simone, can you please give us an update on the outcome of the first round of elections and remind us about the frontrunner candidates? Who are they and what are their
2: platforms? Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having me. So the front runners are Emmanuel Macron, the current French president. He is, I would say, a centrist. He came really from nowhere. He created his own party five years ago. And he very much tried to focus on the fact that he didn't want to be neither the left or the political right. He tried to combine really the best of both worlds. And confronting him is Marine Le Pen. It's the third time that she is running for president. Her father, before her, had also tried to run for president and in 2002 was actually also the front runner facing Jacques Chirac. Marine Le Pen comes from the far right, so what is called the Rassemblement National, which used to be the Front National. Um, the National Front, and it was a party that was created really sort of on far-right issue, anti-immigration, partly also by anti-Semites. And she has tried over the past few years to really sort of change her image quite drastically to appear as more centrist, as a less radical. And so, yeah, those are the two front runners. Macron has 20.78%, Marine Le Pen, 23.1%. And maybe just a word about the third one, because that one is an interesting one, because it was very, very close. That's Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who comes from the far left, and who ended up at 22%. So basically only 1% behind Marine Le Pen, and who's really sort of a very hard hard left, not so different than Jeremy Corbyn used to be for the Labour Party uh, in the United Kingdom. So you basically have today sort of three main candidates, one centrist and two extremes, the far right and the far left uh, being the strongest parties in France today.
1: And do we have any sense of where the other 50% or so of
2: votes might go in a second round? First of all, what is probably interesting to understand is that France, like the United States, like many other countries, used to operate with basically two main parties for decades. The Republican Party, we had the Socialist parties. Those two parties have basically entirely disappeared. The Republican Party candidate actually ended up below 5%, so 4.9%. And the Socialist Party candidate, who is Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, ended up at 1.8%. So that's a very small part. So the big question now is, where will those different votes go in the second round? And out of all of the candidates that we had, The biggest question concerns really the third candidate I mentioned earlier. That's Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left. And as of now, the projections are very, very complicated. A part will go to Marine Le Pen, about one third. Another third will probably go to Emmanuel Macron. And the last third is either undecided or will decide uh, not to vote at the end. So right now you have different polls that, you know, go from 48, 47 percent for Marine Le Pen, 51, 52 percent Emmanuel Macron. But we're still two weeks out. And this is more or less still in the margins of error.
1: And to what do you attribute the frustration with Macron and his loss in popularity. You noted that he kind of came out of nowhere and was a quasi anti-establishment sort of character five years ago. But now Marine Le Pen is positioning herself as more of this populist anti-establishment candidate, and that appears to be gaining traction. So what has happened?
2: So first of all, I think we have witnessed in France for a very long time already, as you just mentioned, this anti-establishment sentiment. A sentiment that the institutions don't work anymore, politicians are not trusted anymore, that the media is not trusted anymore, that parliamentarians are not trusted anymore. So you really have this very strong sentiment that exists and that's run throughout French society. So when you actually look at it, most of the, actually all of the former now presidents never managed to have a second mandate they all only finished up ending having one minute because once you are in the presidential palace you represent that establishment so despite the fact as you just said that emmanuel macron when he first ran for president in 2017 represented to some extent something new someone who didn't come from anywhere who you know was sort of anti-establishment that has changed now and that has changed because he is sits in the presidency so that's a very, very strong feeling that you really could see over the past years. We've had numerous strikes. Of course, we had um, the yellow vests, as you will certainly remember. So we had very, very strong movements, anti-establishment movements over the past years. And that you can see this now in these elections. So to some extent, Marine Le Pen, despite that, the fact that she has been around for so long, that she inherited the party, From her father by just being who she is, meaning representing something, a party that is to some extent forbidden because it's extreme, represents in itself an anti establishment act. So when you actually look at what voters think, they don't actually entirely believe the things that Marine Le Pen proposes. They are rather anti-Putin, anti-Russian. They're, they are—they all want to stay within the European Union. But at the end of the day, the fact of just representing something sort of transgressive, it has some sort of appeal to French voters. People say, you know what? We don't know what to expect with this, but you know, maybe we're going to have a change. Maybe we're going to have some sort of revolution. Well, you know, revolutions (laughs) sometimes, you know, end up well and sometimes don't.
1: Simone, can you tell us about the Jewish community in France and how they are perceiving their options here? We know that CRIF, the umbrella organization for the Jewish community, issued a strong statement condemning Le Pen and urging the French Jewish community not to support her candidacy. So why is this? And do we have any data on how the Jewish community voted in the first round?
2: So it's not just the grief. It's all Jewish institutions, all Jewish organizations in France have not only called for the Jewish community not to vote for her, but have actually specifically called to vote for Emmanuel Macron, basically considering that both the far right and the far left are a danger to French society and Jews in particular. Again, let's not forget that Marine Le Pen's party has roots in anti-Semitism, has anti-Semitic members. And even up until now, there are certain members within her political party system that are, to say it nicely, quite problematic from a Jewish perspective. And then on issues that concern Jewish life she has made some in her program some very, very controversial proposals. The first one obviously being the ban of uh, ritual slaughter, which basically would mean that you would not be able to have any kosher meat in France. We have a Jewish population of about 500,000 Jews, out of whom many do eat kosher uh, meat. So that would basically render the practice of their religion merely Impossible, just even from a survival point of view, that's obviously a huge issue, which, by the way, is also an issue for, as you know, the Muslim community here. So, yeah, that's very, very clear where the Kreef and other Jewish organizations stand. And by the way, up until now, the fact that Jew- the Jewish organizations have always taken such a tough stance on the far right and on Marine Le Pen have, to some extent, I would say, prevented her normalization, has prevented the fact of seeing her as sort of a normal political candidate. So we'll see if that will still be the case with these elections, but in the past it definitely used to be the case that the fact that the Jewish community would say we consider her not to be a an acceptable candidate actually always used to count in the eyes of many French people.
1: Perhaps at this moment, you could say a word about Eric Zemmour, who was another candidate who had a lot of traction and then seemed to fizzle a little bit.
2: So Eric Zemmour is a very famous French political commentator, journalist for many, many years. He is Jewish. He's of Algerian background. But he was he decided to create to run for president just a few months ago, created a party called Reconquête, and really dominated much of the national debate for weeks, even months. He came from nowhere, started polling at 14, 15, 16, 17%, but clearly was very, very radical, very radical on issues related to immigrants, Muslims, as an example, to ban the possibility of giving your children a non-French name. So very, very radical. By the way, to some extent, made Marine Le Pen look as a moderate and was in particular for the Jewish community, extremely controversial. He, for example, said that Maréchal Pétain, during the Second World War, in the time of collaboration between France and the Nazis, actually tried to protect or protected French Jews. He questioned the innocence of the Captain Dreyfus. He accused the parents and grandparents of the children who had been killed in Toulouse in 2012 of burying their children and grandchildren in Jerusalem, calling them not patriotic enough. So he really created quite a lot of controversy within the Jewish community. There was a huge spat between the Jewsians, even the chief rabbi here in France who took position against Eric Zemmour. So it was a very, very public spat. And then sort of in the last part of his campaign, he started to go down in the polls. He ended up, by the way, uh, at 7 percent, so far, far less than what he originally was hoping for, but also tried to, in the last part, to reach out to the Jewish community extensively. There was a case a few weeks ago where a young Jewish name by the name of Jeremy Cohen was killed. Um, It was an accident. He uh, got hit by a train station, but it was revealed that before being hit by a train, he had been harassed and beaten up by a group of young men. And the one who revealed this affair was Eric Zemmour, basically saying that because he was Jewish, those young men tried to attack him and therefore ended up indirectly killing him. And that all of this was actually a cover-up by the government. But that being said, it obviously creates a, a feeling here. You know, there is a lot of debate here and there is an appeal within the French community for Eric Zemmour. Now, I think part of it is true, and not so much because he is racist, but I think to some extent, people have a feeling. You know, we've lived in anti-Semitism. Jewish community has lived in anti-Semitism for 20 years. People have been killed. People are getting beaten up every single day. We have a problem of anti-Semitism. And I think there is just a general sense of frustration that despite everything the six different successes governments have done, it's not enough. So, you know, sometimes just as the rest of the French population, when there is such a high level of frustration, people have a tendency to try and look for easy solutions. And I think Eric Zemmour was capable of saying things in a radical manner that to spoke apparently to some people. So I think down the line, what needs to happen is for the you know, I would say traditional right and left wing and centrist parties, democratic parties, to try and, you know, find solutions, try and discuss and approach and, uh, uh, these difficult issues, and in particular also the issue of anti-Semitism, in order not to leave a vacuum for, you know, more extremist and populist parties to exploit.
1: When is the next round of
2: voting? The next round is on the 24th of April.
1: Okay, so very soon. And we have a global audience here, but we know many of our listeners are in the United States. Should we see this election as a barometer? Or is France different in some way?
2: I think it's part of the same kind of phenomenon that we're seeing across liberal democracies in the Western world, where we are seeing to some extent the liberal democracy, you know, having a crisis and not being able to provide the solutions to part of the population. The problem is that our liberal democracies, to some extent, have failed in that. They have also, I think, failed a generation of people. You know, you and I probably grew up in a generation where, you know, your parents hoped or thought that you would do better than they are. I think today um, there are many people in our societies, in the Western world, who don't believe in that anymore. Who don't necessarily believe that their kids have a better shot at success, at having a better life than they do. I think the issue of antisemitism, which I always see as a symptom and the first symptom, exactly that crisis that I'm just describing, is very much linked. I think every country where you start to see this crisis in the liberal democracy and having people not trusting the institutions anymore, having a tendency to vote more for radical proposals. With that also comes usually anti Semitism from whatever political spectrum on the left or on the right.
1: There is much work ahead. Thank you so much, Simone, for this really fascinating and important analysis. Thank you so much. Thank you very
2: much, Melanie. It was a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for that very interesting conversation.
1: Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week is Maggie Fredman, AJC's Director of the Alexander Young Leadership Department. Hi, Meggie.
3: Great to be with you, Melanie.
1: Meggie, we had the great privilege of spending several days together this week at a really remarkable summit that AJC helped sponsor for university presidents on combating antisemitism. And I would love if you could just share a little bit about what was the purpose of the summit, who attended, who our partners were, and, and what we hoped to achieve by putting this together.
3: AJC really came together and said, the rates of anti-Semitism and marginalization of Jewish students on campuses today are untenable. And while we understand that part of that, part of the solution is empowering our students to address it, a key component there is working with administrators to create a academic environment that really speaks to the higher moral purpose of all higher education, to be welcoming to all students, including Jewish students. So we came together with two critical partners, Hillel International. Hillel International has the largest footprint of any Jewish campus organization in the world. They are at 550 campuses here in the United States. And with the American Council on Education, the leading organizational body for university presidents and chancellors. And we came together and said, how can we bring all of the resources, expertise that all of our three organizations have to bring together university presidents to help them both understand anti-Semitism with the acknowledgement that university presidents and chancellors have enormous demands on their time. And simply understanding the root causes, how anti-Semitism and really anti-Israel rhetoric and sentiment manifests on their campuses, what that looks like. And then the second part, which is so critical, is what are policies, what are actions that can be taken on campus to address them? So just this week, after I mentioned nearly two years of planning, we gathered with over 40 universities here in the United States, some of the leading institutions of higher education, to do just that.
1: It was a remarkable turnout. And I think for those of us who had the privilege of being there and being in the room, to see that so many administrators took this time out of their incredibly busy schedules to spend a full day and a half to really think about how to address anti-Semitism on their campuses was quite astounding and really quite heartening. And one of the things that I saw, and I would love to hear some of the key takeaways that you gained from it, was that there is a real sense of, first of all, there was a sense of real vulnerability. I think that a lot of the university presidents and chancellors expressed themselves there was a lot of concern about the climate on campus that is often leading to a chilling of speech. And these are people who are champions of the marketplace of ideas, champions of the idea that campus is there, a university experience is designed to challenge you, to bring you out of you know your little box and expose you to new ideas. And when discourse is completely shut down, or when people are unwilling to have their views challenged, add in the fact that they are living in the echo chambers of social media, where everything that they think they think (laughs) is reinforced constantly, that it creates a challenge for them as administrators that they are really, really grappling with. And I will add, they're doing so also at a time coming out of a pandemic where people are feeling isolated, they're feeling a little bit off kilter. How do you create a sense of community and connection among a group of strangers, you know, sometimes upwards of 50,000, 60,000 people under all of those conditions and in this kind of climate?
3: I think, you know, the part that going into the summit, there was so much that was heartening, a part that was a bit disheartening was just the fact that we needed the summit, right? And I think that's also what drew so many of our administrators to come. There is an acknowledgement. They understand that what students, Jewish students, pro-Israel students are experiencing on campus is untenable. Jewish students now feel like they need to hide their identity. They feel like they are not welcome in all of their spaces. And that there really is this choice. You know, we're going into Passover and much of the story of the Jews in Egypt. So many Jews chose to not face oppression in Egypt by hiding their identity, giving up their identity. And the Jews who held on to their identity, as we know, face enslavement, oppression, all of you know, certainly in contemporary day, we're not saying that that's exactly analogous to what Jewish students on campus are experiencing. But there is this feeling of being proud, being Jewish and proud, embracing one's identity is something that makes you open to potential exclusion, potential Real opposition, and in some cases, even actual you know, physical anti-Semitic incidents. One thing that really resonated with me and I was so appreciative to learn about really at the summit was this concept that so many schools are grappling with of inclusion versus belonging. And, you know, inclusion, which we often hear this term DEI, which is really, you know, exists both in the private sector and also in academia, of ensuring that different groups are integrated into a campus space, that inclusion is really the lowest common denominator, right? It's just saying, you know, you are theoretically, our space is welcome to you, but belonging, which is what many of these campuses express their are striving for, and certainly they're striving for with how to address anti-Semitism and make campus space welcome to Jewish students, is really what we should all be striving for.
1: Let's end on a positive note, and maybe we can share a little bit about the conversation with Congresswoman Grace Meng from New York. What were your takeaways from her comments? For me, a
3: really moving takeaway was talking about the shared experiences between the Asian American community and the Jewish American community. And while of course, both of our communities represent minorities, there's this interesting and unique challenge or framing that both of our communities have where both of the communities have experienced elements of success in this country. And also in certain spaces are not considered by certain voices minorities, right? Despite the fact that both groups are experiencing significant forms of oppression. And Congresswoman Ming really hit home the point that we need to stand together. We need to be arm in arm the same way that Asian American students should not be, cannot be experiencing any form of bigotry. Jewish students can't either. And I think also closing us out as we go into Passover, so much of, you know, leaving Egypt and having to wander in the desert for 40 years, as the Jews did, and therefore being strangers in a land. There is some of that today, you know, in our non-biblical land, but here in the United States, um, there is an element at times of being the stranger, of really being an outsider. And it's really incumbent on us to stand with other communities who are experiencing that, of course, advocate for our own community, and also really embrace and welcome when those communities, when individuals like Congresswoman Ming and so many in the Asian American community stand with us to say, we appreciate you. And together we, you know, hopefully will not have to wander in a strange land. We can all collectively build a stronger land here. And that, that was a very moving point for me going into Passover.
1: Well, Maggie, I think we both have so much to think about and to discuss both at our Shabbat tables and our Passover seders, which will coincide tomorrow evening. So, Shabbat Shalom and Chag Pesach Sameach. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my
0: colleague Jason Isaacson's conversation with Avi Mulamed on alternative pathways to peace in the Middle East. Next week, People of the Pod will be on hiatus to celebrate Passover. We wish all of our listeners Chag Pesach Sameach. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag PeopleofThePod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.